Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, I'm Andy Olivastro, Director of Coalition Relations at the Heritage Foundation. I'm pleased to welcome you to No Bailouts, State and Local Reforms to Escape Bankruptcy. We'd like to welcome those of you joining us from our Resource Bank Network, our closest friends and allies and conservative leaders. We are used to convening in person this time of year, but we're pleased to offer these robust discussions and expert analysis through our virtual platform. We'd like to also welcome members of the public, our public programs team has a full suite of programming, and you can always find that at heritage.org events. This session is being recorded. It will be posted on resourcebank.org within the next 48 hours. All attendees are in listen-only mode, but we encourage your questions, and you can submit them through the session throughout the session in the questions box on the right-hand side of your screen. We also would ask that you identify yourself and your organization so that we can recognize you and engage you in the conversation. We're pleased to have with us a few special guests today, and they will join us shortly. Our moderator for today's session is Tim Desher. Tim is the Associate Director of Coalition Relations at Heritage. He has a deep background across economic and regulatory policy issues. He's built that background at Heritage, in governor's offices, on presidential campaigns, and in the White House. Many of you will recognize his name and his voice as he is the co-host of our popular Heritage Explains podcast. We are thrilled to have him lead today's discussion on no bailouts, state and local reforms to escape bankruptcy. And now it's my pleasure to turn it over to Tim. Well, thank you, Andy, really appreciate it. It's great to have an awesome boss. And Andy, you are one of those awesome bosses. So thank you again for the introduction. And everybody who's tuning in, thank you for joining us at lunchtime. You feel free to grab something to eat. We're gonna wait until after we're done to eat, but uh, we, will, we will wish that we were there with you uh, enjoying lunch. This is a very important topic today, and I'm, I'm not going to waste much time um, prefacing it because we're going to have a robust discussion. And with that, we have some of the most um, helpful voices in understanding what uh, a federal bailout of states would look like, both uh, for economic recovery and uh, for federalism. Um, so I'm going to go through uh, the list of the folks uh, speaking today, and we're going to start off with the Honorable Allison Ball. She's the 38th state treasurer of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And by the way, I'm just going to go ahead and ask all of our panelists to turn their cameras on right now as I read through the bio. So thank you for that. So Treasurer Ball, 38th state treasurer of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. She became the first Republican female to be reelected to a constitutional office in November and earn the most votes of any other candidate on the ballot in both 2015 and 2019. She's a fierce watchdog for Kentucky taxpayer dollars. She's been a national leader for improved financial literacy and established the Kentucky Financial Empowerment Database and the Kentucky Financial Empowerment Commission. 
Additionally, Treasurer Ball started a savings and investment program for Kentuckians with disabilities called Stable Kentucky that allows families to save money while continuing to receive assistance at no cost to Kentuckians. She's a wife, she's a mother, and she's a great friend of Heritage. Treasurer Ball, thank you for being here today. Next up is Rachel Gressler. She's a research fellow in the Grover M. Perman Center for the federal budget and focuses on retirement and labor policy, pension reform, social security, and many, many other issues. Before joining Heritage, she was a senior economist on the staff of the Joint Economic Committee of Congress for seven years. So she has a deep background in all these issues. You can see her testify before Congress. She's all over the media and you can read her work frequently published all throughout national news outlets. But most importantly, she's an incredible runner, great athlete, she's a wife, and she's a mother of not four, not five, but six kids. So Rachel, thanks for being here today. And last but certainly not least is Dr. Vance Ginn. He's the chief economist at our um, partner organization, Texas Public Policy Foundation in Austin, Texas. He earned his doctorate in economics at Texas Tech University and has an accomplished career as policy director, university lecturer, and his vast experience in government, academia, and public policy. And really interesting enough, he spent the last year serving in the White House as the Associate Director for Economic Policy in the Office of Management and Budget. So he has a very keen outlook as to some of the issues that we're going to be discussing today. But more of all, in his current role, he is driven by the idea of humans flourishing through free market ideas. He is passionate about reducing barriers and seeing everybody have the opportunity to prosper in America. So everybody, thank you so much for being here. Thank so Rachel, I'm just gonna start with you as we get into this conversation. And, and by the way, folks, please use the questions. We, we definitely, definitely always get to them. And so it's really important for you um, to, to stay connected through this. We can't be there in person. So the question box is a really good way of doing it. Please identify yourself and uh, we'd love to uh, have you join in the conversation. We check that throughout the entire um, uh, program. But Rachel, I'm gonna throw it to you first. In your recent report, you talk about governors and lawmakers are now asking for nearly $1 trillion in federal money for a bailout. That's taxes that I pay, that you pay, that everybody pays to bail out individual states. Um, and of course, this is due to COVID-19, very real issue. Um, but the way they make it sound, it's as though the federal government has done nothing to help out. But that's not true. So I want you to bring this up to speed. What has Congress already done? Yes, um, and let's put the trillion dollars in perspective that they're asking for, because what we're really talking about is $7,800 for every household in the United States. And this money isn't just coming off of trees, it's ultimately going to be paid by everyone. But the issue is, do we socialize these state debts? And you know what happens then is everybody tends to spend more. If you've ever gone out to eat at a restaurant with a group of people and you decide ahead of time we're gonna split the tab, you know, a lot of people just kind of throw their fiscal responsibility to the wind and you end up ordering more and more. And in the end, everybody pays more. 
um, but you still are going to have that tab. It's just going to be bigger than it was before. And what we're really looking at here is that, yes, every state is facing financial shortfalls because of COVID-19, and so many families and businesses, and so is the federal government. Um, but, you know, the Constitution doesn't charge the government with maintaining state budgets during bad times. Um, so it's really the states that have the power to tax and to spend, and it's their responsibility. But even saying that, you know, the government has done a lot already. They have provided close to $200 billion in direct funding to the states. But on top of that, well over a trillion dollars between the Paycheck Protection Program, unemployment insurance, and this is all trickling down to the states. I mean, 70% of people who are unemployed are actually making more from unemployment than they used to make from their paychecks. And I've had conversations with my local county officials and they say, we are actually expecting to get higher revenues because of all this income that is coming in. It might not have been realized yet during the shutdown when people can't go out and spend that money and the taxes that they'll collect on it probably won't come until 2021 when people file. But the reality is a lot has already been done and it's already feeding through to those state and local governments. And what we're talking about with a trillion dollars is twice the amount of projected lost revenues of state and local governments, not just in 2020, but also in 2021. So this is really an excessive amount as well. Yeah, thank you so much, Rachel. Treasurer Ball, I, I'm, I want you to do the best that you can to answer this. Um, it's, it's, it's broad intentionally. Um, I know that you have sound uh, fiscal policy on the front of your mind all the time, but shoot us straight. Can you see a federal bailout like this magnitude being helpful for the Commonwealth of Kentucky? Honestly, I, I don't. And I know that I differ with my, my governor in my state on that because he's one of the ones who's really pushing for a federal bailout. But he's of that mindset, too, where you just try and get as much money as you can. And there's a lot of people in government who are in that position. But ultimately, I, I don't believe this is a wise thing. It's not a prudent thing. It's not going to have a good long-term result. So I, I totally back up what you're saying, Rachel, on the ground with my experience, what I'm seeing. Uh, there's a reason why we believe certain principles work. And if you throw those principles out, you're going to see what happens. And uh, I really believe this is the time to stand true to the things that you know are, are accurate and produce the good results. Yeah, it's fascinating. You recently wrote a letter. It was an open letter that was published um, to the governor. Um, and, you, and I'll just quote this and I'll let you follow up with it. You said, quote, at a bare minimum, we must reopen the economy in full as quickly as possible to give the Commonwealth a chance to stabilize. I think that that's in incredible. But put that in the context of, of now the pivot to, OK, we need a bailout federal government. Right. I'd be happy to. And, and the context of that letter was because of our massive unemployment. Uh, we have the highest rate of unemployment in the country right now. We're a small state. We're about 4.5 million people. So we're, we're, not a, we're not a big one population-wise, and we're not a big one when it comes to the amount of money that we have in our state. And we currently have about 45% of our workforce, so about a million people in Kentucky that have claimed unemployment in the last few months. I mean, that is absolutely staggering. So, of course, if you're going to be putting this much money out there, if you don't have the money, you're going to be asking the federal government for it. But really, the, what we need to do is open the economy. And we're starting to see that across the country, that when you open the economy, you don't need to worry about finding money for unemployment because people are employed. And, uh, and we know from experience what that does for the future. It just stabilizes things. It produces uh, good results for families. That's what you need to be looking at, uh, not just trying to get more money so you can keep people unemployed.
And, and actually, just really quick, one quick yeah. example. My my brother, who's 25, he's a law student right now. He was telling me two months ago when this whole thing started, he was talking to several friends. In fact, they all keep contacting him and saying, hey, I have a job and my boss keeps trying to get me to go back to work, but I'm scared I don't want to go back to work. And Jonathan's thought was, you, you have a job. You should be really lucky right now that you've got a job. And I, I'm a little bit concerned that we're starting to shift some mentality with people is that you know, it's safer to be home. Don't don't think about employment um, because that's going to have all sorts of dangerous repercussions for the future. Yeah, and that's a very, very good point. And I don't envy anybody ever in law school. So, uh, you know, to your brother, good luck. <laughs> um, hey, Dr. Ginn, I want to move on to you here. Um, as, as Treasurer Ball was talking about, some of the economic numbers that we've seen and that we are seeing. Um, and, and you've written extensively about that. So just put that a little bit more in context and then give us a little bit of what Texas looks like having uh, started opening up uh, already. Yeah, sure, Tim. Uh, thank you. And thank you for this opportunity to be here today. It's always good to, to work with you all and um, the great work that you do each and every day uh, to spread freedom and prosperity. And, and, and ultimately, I mean, that's what we're all trying to do. And we want people to be as prosperous as possible. Um, and we, we had a massive thing happened, right, with the coronavirus and, and, and COVID-19 spreading a, across the country. And it was something that when I was at the White House, we looked at extensively and, and, and worked on and looked at the numbers and trends. And it, what I think it's important is to look at where we've been as well. Um, you know, whenever we were coming into this, going into February of 2020, we had the lowest unemployment rate we've had in, in a half a century at 3.5%. You know, jobs were recreating at a, at a fast pace. There was a lot of prosperity, lowering income inequality, wealth inequality was falling as well across the nation, which is something that we also hadn't seen um, for, for years, if not decades, right? And, and so I think it, it's important to see where we were then and then how much of a, a hit, what I've been calling the great disruption, right? It disrupted our lives from the COVID-19 of, of what, we, what we've seen. Um, a lot of the states then decided there was a lot of social distancing. If you look at the in indicators, open table, things of that nature, Social distancing led to less mobility among folks in each state, um, rightfully so, right? They were, they were worried, they were fearful about the future. Then you had state and local governments start to shut things down um, of society in the middle of, of March, and then that's continued since then. But what we've seen from places like Texas, where I'm at, is that they're starting to phase out these shutdowns. As you'll notice, as I'm actually in the studio, I'm not at my house, as the Texas Policy Foundation, you know, we've been open for, for a little while now, and which is different than in many states, maybe where, maybe where you're at, right? Because they see the different backgrounds, um, just kind of an indication there. And, and when you look at the jobs report that came out today, the state level jobs report was reported by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And again, it shows that those states like Texas, like Florida, that have started to end their shutdown and start to phase out more quickly have had more job creation. Uh, for example, in Texas, there was 237,000 jobs that were added, right? just in the month of May, um, which, which is massive. And it was an increase of 2% just month over month. California also had a, you know, a little over 100,000 jobs that were created, but that's only a 0.9% increase, right? Because they've got a larger population and everything else. And so what we're seeing, which is unfortunate, is that we're gonna have this income disparity to where you're gonna have more economic growth, more incomes that are gonna be gained in places that are opening up faster, right? Compared to those states that aren't opening up as fast. And, and, and to kind of finish that off is that in Texas, as we're seeing the openings, we are seeing an increase in some cases, 
right? As more people are having more economic activity, we're human social beings. This is what we're, you know, what we really need to be out there doing. And so as this more activity is happening, you're going to see more cases, but our hospitalization rates are still low. We have plenty of hospital capacity overall for those who, you know, unfortunately get this. And, and, and at the same time, we've got to be careful about what exactly we're trying to do. Are we trying to get cases to zero? That's, that's essentially unrealistic, and there's high amounts of trade-offs if you shut down an economy to try to do that, which we've seen here in all of our states, and Texans and Americans' lives and livelihoods are at stake, and it's something that we've really got to look at, and so ultimately, we don't need more bailouts because the bailouts are just going to extend the time that these people, you know, that the states are going to decide to end the shutdowns, and they need to do things internally, like cutting government spending and things of that nature to really deal with any revenue shortfalls that they have. Yeah, I want to I want to piggyback off that, and, I, and Rachel, I, I want to because because you talk about this in your report, and I want you to give you a chance to connect the dots a little bit here. How do you see a see a bailout hindering economic recovery? Can you just go a little deeper in that for us? Yeah, well, and as Vance was pointing out, we see all these gains when states allow people to return to their lives and to their livelihoods, and it's the opposite when you don't allow them to, and you have taken away the ability to earn an income and to care for their family. Um, and that's the consequence when you say essentially we're going to hold you harmless for the economic consequences of the decisions you make, these state and local policymakers, and all you have to worry about is the health side, they're going to put overly restrictive you know, limits out there and hold these shutdowns for much longer periods of time. You know, I'm in one of the counties around D.C. where we, we're entering phase two today. Um, and so everything has been held back so much and these things sprinkle throughout, you know, they go down the curve. So I don't have a child care for my children. It looks like I won't have a child care until September. Fortunately, I'm able to do things from home. But if I actually had to go into the office, there's my income between now and September because I would have to stay home because the child care centers can't open. And think about in the fall, if the schools don't reopen, what is that gonna do to people's ability to earn a living? You know, we have the unemployment benefits expiring, that money is not gonna be there forever. I certainly hope they don't extend it, as CBO has said that that would actually hurt the economy instead of help it. But the policymakers need to be held responsible for the entirety of the decisions they, they make, not just the health side, but both sides. And they need to be making those decisions just as families are sitting down at the table and budgeting, you know, based on what they can pull back on and not thinking they're going to be able to shift the cost to others. Yeah, Treasurer Ball, um, I'll pivot to you here. You're in your second term now, so you've been you've been in the game for a little bit here. Um, you know how it's played. Um, I'm sure that you've um, experienced the pressure from Washington, D.C. in running, you know, your state from a treasurer perspective. Um, I, I'm curious, just broader, is there anything that you'd like to see, so so we're against bailouts, but is there anything you'd like to see more or less from uh, Washington, D.C.? Good question. One thing I wanted to kind of throw out there, and it, it somewhat relates to what you're saying, just kind of taking people behind the curtains for a minute of what I saw with the CARES Act, with the money that came into states from the CARES Act. And right. of course, we're talking right now about future potential bailout money, and this money was not technically bailout money. But uh, all states got a huge portion of money that was supposed to go to things that are related to uh, COVID-19. So it's unexpected payments that you're going to have to pay because of this, this particular uh, health crisis. So we got about $1.7 billion in Kentucky. You know, everybody got billions of dollars all across the state. 
well, I'm going to call every week with treasurers across the country. And we still have this conversation, but for the first few weeks, the conversation was, what do we do with this money? What can we do with this money? We have no idea what to do with this money. And uh, we found out you can't, you can't invest it because any interest goes back to the federal government. Um, you can't, uh, there's some problems about commingling it. There's documentation problems. Everyone's like, we have this money. We have no idea what to do with it. So one thing we do know is that I can go to these COVID expenses and our governor has taken all these contracts out for contact tracing right now. And we set up two field hospitals. One of them's already been closed. The other one's just sitting there empty and it's being guarded by the national guard. My brother has law school classmates who are guardsmen and they said they're just hanging out at the field hospital every day, you know, just, just killing time. Uh, one of those field hospitals costs $7 million to build. And I think, would we spend this money if we weren't suddenly handed over this money and said, here, you have restrictions on what you can do with this, but do something with it. So all these states are trying to figure out what can they do with this money. Uh, and, and contact tracing is something as a conservative I'm very, very, very uncomfortable with. Well, would we do something like that if we weren't handed a whole bunch of money and said, here, go, go and spend this money? So it's a great reminder to me about you want to live under the principles that you've thought about when it's not a crisis. You know, the time when you could think through what's going on. And those are the things that need to guide you when you're in a crisis. So those things that we thought about when we weren't in a crisis, those things we thought about deregulation, those things we thought about um, uh, making sure we're cutting spending and being wise with our money. Well, those are the things that I'd like to see from the federal government that will, will help businesses. Those are things I like to see from my own state. We need to be focusing on deregulation. We've done that for the last four years, and now there's a push to overregulate again. Uh, we're having a shift in mentality. So, so my big point in all of that, the things we thought about when there wasn't a crisis, the things we thought work, we need to hold on to those things while we're in a crisis. And I can't help but jump in here as you were giving examples of, you know, not knowing what to do with the money that's already been given to them. And that's the thing is when you send those federal dollars out there, and yes, the first ones were supposed to have strings attached, the second ones wouldn't. But I know from my own county, what they did is they said, we're going to implement pay raises for public employees, an additional $10 per hour for frontline, $3 per hour for the back office people. And I've heard that Iowa apparently passed a measure to pay people to go back to work you know, one-time bonus or to keep paying the unemployment benefits, that's not a targeted way to help people. If you're going to do the unemployment side, at least provide it to the people who don't have work options, um, but we don't need to pay people to go back. Yeah, and if I could, Tim, um, yeah. one thing that's important to mention here is that there, there's a lot of money, and Rachel talked about this earlier, um, there, there's about $1.1 trillion that's been authorized for some sort of state uh, funding right? Whether it be through the CARES Act or, and, and then what was authorized to the Federal Reserve. Um, if you look at what the, the COVID money tracker that uh, the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget has available, what they show is that there's been about $9 trillion, right, overall that's been provided for COVID-19 funding. And um, less than half of that has actually been, well, right around half of it has actually been allocated now, Right. So there's still a lot of money that's been put into the overall system from Congress, our tax tax dollars. Um, and, and not all of that, of course, was for states, but about a trillion dollars has been authorized in some capacity for the states. 
And uh, when you look at the $150 billion directly for the pandemic-related expenses for states um, and other things, Medicaid reimbursement rates were also increased substantially. So that's going to bring more to the states as well. Um, and, and to be honest, like I'm, I'm pretty concerned about the Federal Reserve's actions. I mean, if you looked at just over the last couple of months, I mean, this is on monetary policy instead of fiscal policy, but it influences our daily lives. Um, they've increased their balance sheet by about $3 trillion. And now they're talking about buying, uh, you know, some of those bonds and, and, and securities from cities and states. Um, that That's an area that's very troubling if we continue down that path. Yeah, thanks, Vance, for that. Um, we have a, a question that came in that kind of goes along with um, just states having to start to um, figure out ways to do this. I mean, that's what we're prescribing. You can do this without a bailout. And this one is from Owen Sumber. He says, and, and, and you know, you don't have to talk directly on this, but I think it just tangentially goes along with what we're saying here. And, and I'll throw it out to anybody. Thoughts on pressure to legalize gambling and marijuana in the context of this? You know, are we willing to go that far? Um, to 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 be supportive of something we weren't in order to help close these gaps that we need. Rachel, why don't you start us out with 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 that? Yeah, well, and I'd like to talk about the options that you can turn to first before talking about you know gambling and marijuana. You know, look back at the state's recent spending increases. That's the first thing you do when you sit down and you budget. You know, look at what's increasing too much and driving that. You compare Florida to California um, or New York. You know, tech or Texas, you know, let's look at all them. Florida and California, Florida um, and in Texas have either had a decline in their spending or just a modest increase in their per capita spending, whereas California and New York have had a 50% increase. You know, the education is a big part of that. Why does Florida spend $9,000 per student and have significant achievement gains and give choice to parents while New York is spending $24,000 and they don't have those achievement gains or the choice? You know, public sector employees are a huge part of this. And yes, some of those cost realizations by, you know, just bringing public sector compensation in line with the private sector, it might take time, but there are really small steps that you can do in the interim, you know, not giving a COLA for one year, a hiring freeze, actually stopping your pension contributions for one year, like we've seen private sector companies do, just put a pause on the 401k, that's over $200 billion collectively across the states. You know, some tax changes that could be made, the states that aren't taxing their unemployment insurance benefits, they absolutely should be taxing them. You know, the work environments that we're establishing, California is driving out work, which brings in tax revenue through harmful laws like AB5 that effectively outlaws individuals being able to work for themselves. Um, and then there are just these other labor policy things like minimum wages. If you're a state that has a really high minimum wage or you recently enacted one and you're on that pathway up, we know that minimum wages drive out jobs and create survival of the fittest labor markets and hurt the lowest income people. Let's put a pause on those increases or let's, let's scale them back. So there's so many other options that are already out there for the states to have sizable gains. Yeah, Vance, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, no, I know. I'd echo what Rachel just said, and I think some of the things that we're looking at in, in, in Texas is that the, the the governor, lieutenant governor, and the speaker of the house they came out recently and said, "Look, we need to have five percent in savings provided by these agencies." They've asked and requested these agencies to submit five percent in savings. Um, it's not all the agencies; it's only some of them. But I think that's the direction that we need to go: is looking at how do we reduce spending instead of starting to raise taxes. 
Um, you know, maybe those are ideas to think about another time, but you don't want to be raising taxes, I don't think really ever, uh, but especially during a crisis, right? Um, some other things that we're looking at are our um, Senate Finance Chair, uh, Jane Nelson, she has been looking at zero-based budgeting that we've been pushing forward for uh, here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation for, for decades now. Um, and then, you know, rolling back regulations. If, if you can roll back these regulations, um, telemedicine being one that's been rolled back here in Texas and many other places, um, if, it's not, if, it was, if it's not good during a crisis, why should it be good during normal times for these regulations? That's also going to reduce barriers for people to be able to um, live their hopes and dreams and be able to have, be more prosperous um, overall. And, and, then, and then finally, look, I mean, this is why you have a rainy day fund. Texas has a rainy day fund of about $9 billion, uh, which is pretty high when you think, but you got to think we've got a $250 billion biennial budget, so $125 billion each year. Uh, but we've got $9 billion in there. So when you think about reducing spending, rainy day fund, Texas received $8.3 billion from, um, from CARES money, right? And so just those things alone would mean no high, we don't need to raise taxes at all. And what we really got to focus on is reducing spending because ultimately that just means higher taxes on all of us. Hey, Treasurer Ball, I, I, you, you do incredible work when it comes to financial literacy. Um, and and I've, I've followed that for a few years now. And um, I, I just, I had a comment and maybe you can piggyback off of it. Um, I'm seeing people um, in the chat post comments about, you know, we're trillions of dollars in debt. You know, we we've got all this money that we've already we're, we're already on the hook for, and now we're going to go even further here. I wonder if financial literacy could be a big help in communicating just how devastating the consequences are to continuing to take us further in debt. And I'm wondering if you if you've thought a little bit on that, or maybe even seen results from some of the financial literacy courses that you do um, and engage in. Absolutely. That's a great point, Tim. That's one of the things that I first got really excited about, about promoting financial literacy. I mean, obviously it has some real world benefits to a person's life and their family and it has generational impacts. But something that I like as somebody who believes in conservative principles is that it, it is a natural way to teach people the basics about conservative principles. And they start to get it, just like you just said about uh, deficits and uh, just spending too much, not being wise and budgeting. Uh, if you start teaching people those things, they start to apply it then at a government level as well. So I, I believe it's not just a personal benefit, but it actually has a national benefit. It has a state benefit because people will start to think about the policies that are implemented and does that tie in with the things they've learned on financial literacy. So it's a great, great point, something I absolutely believe in. I think it's something we as conservatives need to be pushing because it's a tremendous way to teach some some good principles. Rachel, um, we, we were talking yesterday about um, a poll that was recently conducted that says a large majority of Americans are not in favor of um, the federal government bailing out the states. And yet we're seeing all of this pressure from governors and lawmakers to do this. What, what's the gel there? You know, why? What, what, are they not listening or is it, just, is it just they're not aware of the consequences when asked these questions? Yeah, so there was a poll that showed um, that only 22% of the public actually supports these state and local bailouts. And that's across both sides of the aisle. It's slightly higher for Democrats, but still only 34% support these bailouts. And I think that in part, that's because they realize that they will end up paying for it in the end, and they'll end up paying more because in the past, when the government has provided these bailouts, it's given the opportunity for the states to go out and spend more. The problem then is the disconnect between the public 
in the politicians. You know, clearly it's in the politicians' interest as the election is coming up this November to want to get the money so that they don't have to make the tough choices about what they might cut back their spending on in the ways that they're going to address these temporary shortfalls in, that could create, you know, positive, um, more positive future. And so I think that we need people to be, you know, letting their public officials know that they don't support this and they don't want that. They don't want a bigger government. They don't want to have to pay for the services received by individuals in other states. They want their own politicians to be responsible. Vance, tell me a little bit more about the lay of the land um, in Texas when it comes to um, lawmakers um, working together. To What are some of the things that they're proposing? You know, are they um, making uh, regulations that they waived permanent. This is just go a little bit more in depth as to what Texas is doing. The proof is in the pudding. Texas is one of the most um, incredibly run states uh, in the country. And so just, yeah, enlighten us a little bit more there. Yeah, sure, Tim. I mean, you, you're right. There's, there seems to be something that's been done differently in Texas uh, for quite a while. It's something that we've called the Texas model, right, of having lower taxes overall, um, limited government spending, no personal income tax, it's a big one. <laughs> uh, sensible regulations. Those sort of things allow for um, this inclusive institutional framework to allow people to flourish, right? To best meet um, their own needs and their families' needs and allows for entrepreneurs to do what do, they do best, which is create jobs, invest back in their business and, and keep things growing. And that's really what we need more of. I think that's what we've seen a lot with, within the, the Trump administration, right? The Trump tax cuts, a lot of the deregulations that's happened at at that level, which, which, as I mentioned earlier, how we were doing so well as a nation before we went into this COVID-19. Um, you know, I've recently wrote about this where we have the, the template for how to, to be more prosperous after this is over with. I mean, I think the first thing is, is ending the shutdowns. All right. That gets the economic activity growing again. But then we need to look at pro-growth policies. What's worked across the state, what's worked at the, the national level, uh, I think are keeping taxes low, making sure that government spending doesn't grow and, and, and crowd out more of the private sector. Um, you know, this year you're talking about the deficit. I mean, we may reach something around $4 trillion. It's a massive amount of the overall deficit, maybe 20 to 25% of GDP, something that we haven't seen since World War II. I mean, these are massive numbers that, you know, some would argue, well, interest rates are so low, there's not a huge crowding out effect. Uh, but I think we've also got to look at the amount of government spending. All of that is a redistribution, right, from the private sector to the public sector. So every dollar should ultimately count. And, and, and then, you know, it's not talked about much right now because so much is going on. Families are struggling. But, but I think we need to see some fiscal sanity to where we start talking about fiscal rules and start talking about limiting government spending. Something we've done here in Texas, what's called the conservative Texas budget, to where we set it as a benchmark to where the government shouldn't, the government spending as a whole should not grow by more than population growth and inflation. Basically what it does is it freezes per capita government spending over time in real terms. And that's something that we should be thinking about because every new dollar that's spent is coming out of our pocketbooks, right? And it means higher taxes on each and every one of us. And that does not create more economic growth. Keynesian economics failed a long time ago. You know, during this whole CARES Act and everything else discussion, I mean, maybe there was a part of being having financial aid and liquidity so people can continue to, to survive, if you will, throughout this COVID-19 and shutdown, but it doesn't stimulate anything. Right. Um, if anything, it's probably retarding economic growth. There are many policies that are retarding the, that growth. And that's something that we need to move out of the way and get back to a form of fiscal sanity so we can have more job creation and prosperity overall. 
Yeah, Vance, just, just following up on that, uh, Christian Millard sent in a, a question and a comment saying the federal government ought to spend our dollars primarily on national security and protection of liberties. Amen. Apart from natural disasters or terrorist attacks, why should taxpayers have to fork over funds to local entities and states that mismanage their budgets? And again, folks, please send in your questions. These are such helpful stimulants um, for us to, to, um, to, to make the case against these bailouts. You're right on it. You got it. So thank you for uh, posting your questions there, um, and, and we will get to those. But, but following up on that, the mismanagement of budgets, I want um, Rachel maybe to talk about it, and actually Treasurer Ball, you can talk about this as well, given Kentucky's perspective, about, about pensions, the P word. It's a big deal. Rachel, you are knee deep in this. You know what's going on. You know that they've been angling, that the, the left has been angling for a bailout of pensions for a long time. Talk a little bit more about how deep that problem is and why it's contributing to this call for bailouts. Yes, the pensions problem is enormous and it's one of the driving forces behind these states that have fiscal problems. Um, you know, collectively across the US, I don't think most people realize this, but state and local governments have promised about $5 trillion more in pension benefits than they actually have set aside to pay. And so that's created this enormous burden for current and future taxpayers. And we saw wait, this- Wait, hold on one second. Just say, say, I, wanna, I wanna emphasize that again. They're on the hook for $5 trillion more than they actually have, these states. Is that correct? Yes. And you can go to the American Legislative Exchange Council puts out a report this year that will break it down by state so you can see how much your state liability is. Um, you know, Illinois Senate Democrats sent a letter to Congress early on in this whole COVID crisis, and they asked for a $40 billion bailout just for their state. Included in that was $10 billion for their pensions. Their pensions problem is decades in the making. It has nothing to do with the last three months of what's been happening in COVID-19. The state's already spending 25% of the revenues that it collects to pay retired public employees. Current taxpayers aren't getting any benefit for those retired public employees, and yet an enormous share um, of what they're taxing their individuals for is going to the pension system. So this is absolutely something that needs to be reformed. And the problem is, is when you just send that money to the states, they have no incentive to reform. We saw that Illinois recently passed a record high spending budget, and it even included significant pay raises to public employees. And their only solution was, we're going to pass this budget, we're going to keep spending, and we hope that the federal government's going to bail us out. That's not a solution. Treasurer Ball, anything to add on that? Yeah, I mean, economics is about consequences. And the way we've set up pensions is a great example of what happens, what the consequences are. So Kentucky, I think, should be the poster child on, on bad pensions. I know everyone talks about Illinois, and Illinois is, is well-deserving. <laughs> but, but Kentucky's pretty bad, too. And we've been trying to deal with this for the last four years. We haven't really succeeded. And it's and, and now people aren't even talking about it because we've got other problems that we we're trying to deal with. But just a, a snapshot. So our KRS, which is our state employees, just general state employees, it's 13% funded. At least it was a few months ago. Uh, our best one is the teacher's retirement. And it's 58% funded. So that's really scary. Wait, wait say that again. Say, what, what does that mean, 13% funded? That means that if, if you had to pay it all right now, you could only pay 13% of what's owed? Yes. Is that right? That, Yes, that's what that's what we've got right now. And we've wow. got 50, 58% in our, our teachers one. And that's the one that's our one we're proud of. That we feel really, really good about. <laughs> okay. So so that's pretty scary if that's your your 
you know, claim to fame. That's what you're really excited about and wanting to talk about. And it's years and years and years of bad decision making that have put us in this position. And some of it was not funding the ARC, the actual required contributions. Uh, and that's why the governor is currently talking about we need bailout money. We need help. We need something because there's a consequence for those decisions for all those years. And, and really, you're correct, Rachel. This is a great time in advance, too. This is a cr great time to figure out what do we need to do right now to make changes rather than just pushing it down and putting band-aids on, which aren't even really band-aids. They're actually just going to, it's like giving yourself a band-aid and also cutting yourself under the band-aid. You're doing both of those things at the same time. So we need to make changes. And, and one of the, one of the positives about bad things happening is it's a push to make a change. Yeah, and just some common sense things like this requires comprehensive reform that's going to take a long time to enact, but there are little things that will still have a big impact. You know, Chicago, um, I think that their pension spiking, which is the practice of significantly raising somebody's salary in their last three years, because did you know that your pension benefit isn't based on the average of your entire career, but just those last three years when you've had the highest earnings, well, it turns out that just a four percentage point spike in those last years, oftentimes it's higher, can translate into $380,000 per individual in extra benefits that they're going to receive. Scale that back. There are common sense things that states can do that don't require reneging on the promises that were made, but just making responsible, you know, reasonable choices. Hey, hey Vance, I'm, I'm curious. Can you weigh in a little bit, maybe put on your Washington, D.C. hat? I mean, you... You were able to have a, a front row seat and were even involved in the performance of really kickstarting this economy and, and continuing to uh, keep this economy going through pro-growth principles, as you mentioned. Uh, there's a question that came in. It says, rather than taxing more and redistributing more, what are some of the most significant federal mandates that could be relaxed or removed? There are a lot of them. <laughs> um, you know, you could list a whole, whole bunch of them. I mean, part of it deals with, with Medicaid uh, and the way that the state's Medicaid uh, program must function and the amounts that are paid and how those reimbursement rates are set. Um, you know, some people were, are upset with the amount of the $150 billion from the CARES Act that had to go to the pandemic sort of relief uh, within the states. I mean, those are sort of ties as well. I mean, if you're going to get money from Congress, you know that there's going to be some sort of red tape associated with it whatever it's going to be. Um, you know, and, and with this whole state bailout idea, and I, I love the comments that Allison and Rachel were making, it, it seems to me that there are really three reasons why we don't need it, right? One is it subsidizes poor fiscal management over time. Uh, another one to me is that there's still plenty of money that's already been allocated that hasn't even been, well, it's been authorized. It hasn't even been allocated yet. And, and, and they need, and, and states need to look internally on, how, on what to do with their own budgets instead of asking Congress and socializing those costs across the United States. Um, and, and then number, number three, you know, when, when you're really looking at uh, what should be done here, it's, it's phasing out these shutdowns. And I think when you look at the jobs report today, that's going to bring in more revenue as tax receipts, as we talked about earlier. Um, and, and so you may not even have nearly the amount of tax receipt shortfall that you think today because the fiscal year won't run out until you know months from now. In Texas, for example, we have a biennial legislature. We still have like 15 more months left in the current biennium. Um, and so that's plenty of time to bring in more additional tax receipts. Now, I still want them to be pressured into cutting spending. Uh, you know, um, deficits and debt are always and everywhere a spending problem, not a tax problem. 
right? And, and so that's really where the focus must be. And um, I, I think our discussion hopefully today has helped to continue to make that message clear. And if I could add a couple unfunded mandates yeah. that are out there now that would help a lot more than bailouts, bailouts um, there's all types of strings and regulations attached to education funds that we could easily pair back to give the states the authority to better effectively meet their individuals' needs who they know more than the federal government does. Um, with the CARES Act, we included this new paid family and medical leave mandate requiring that state and local governments give their workers up to 12 weeks of paid leave, including for things like having children home. Um, and yet, while we provided funding for the private sector to do that, we put it on the state's um, own tabs to pay for those things. And then repealing the Davis-Bacon Act. This is an antiquated law that results in artificially high wages being paid on construction projects. If you were to eliminate that, you could reduce the cost of construction by 10% or free up enough for 30,000 additional people to be employed in construction projects. Talking about, about mandates from the federal government, and you're talking about unfunded mandates, but one thing I would, just as a word of caution, because part of the thing we're looking at right now is bankruptcy. And I actually am a bankruptcy attorney. That's what I did before I became treasurer. And if you allowed a restructuring of the law, which would permit states to enter into bankruptcy, it would just be federal mandates. The federal government would suddenly have control. And I don't know if it would be the federal bench or if it would be some kind of committee set up by Congress, the president, or how you would structure it. But you would all of a sudden be surrendering control as a state to the federal government. And they would be saying, who's who's a winner? Who's a loser? Who's a creditor that's going to get money? Who's a creditor who's not going to get money? What's What are you going to do with the pensions? Are they going to win? Are they going to lose? So there's a lot of scary things about entering into bankruptcy. And I just wanted to throw that out there because there's a mandate from the federal government aspect to that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And we can see that that's happening right now in Puerto Rico. And not only does it impose the federal government's authority on these state and local governments, um, but it's not always the fair and equitable process that I think a lot of people think it to be a good solution. Um, you know, it often does not end up that way and its discretion is given and pensioners are favored over bondholders, et cetera. It's not, it's not all it's chalked up to be in terms of equity. And, and, and if I could, Tim, um, yes, one thing I would yes, add please. here is, yeah, is add here is that if we, if we fund these things, oftentimes what we do is just kick it down the road, right? Mm -hmm. That pension problem is still there until we make some major reforms to our pension systems. Um, and so additional funding would be helpful in, in the short run, but over time, and Rachel mentioned this earlier, like we've got to make some major reforms, um, or we'll be in the same situation um, that we are today. So I think that's that's really important to make these longer term reforms. Vance or Rachel, I'll throw this to you at Treasurer Ball if you think so. This is a question that just came in. It's a little technical. Um, it's from Thomas Savage. And he said, is the Fed's new lending facility for state and local governments um, exacerbating the current situation? Now, to, to admit, I don't know much about this, but you can also pivot to how the Fed is also um, um, just kind of adding zeros to that balance sheet and, and what that actually means and what that actually looks like for future growth in this nation. So if you wanna get in, in, into the weeds a little bit to help Thomas out, uh, answer that question, um, go for it. And if not, just talk generally about all those zeros that we continue to add uh, to that uh, debt uh, through the Fed's uh, printing. Yeah, well, I would say, you know, we won't know until sometime into the future how much of a risk this was and whether or not it was worth taking. It was absolutely unprecedented. Never before have we had the Federal Reserve be lending to state and local governments the way that it is now. Um, the argument for it was to provide kind of a bridge loan as states were having a decline in revenues and they had more borrowing constraints that have been self-imposed um, in their own right. But 
you know, I think that time will tell whether or not this was helpful or hurtful, but absolutely, we are just increasing the risks of our debt as it grows larger and larger. And the problem with a debt crisis and a financial crisis that turns into an economic crisis is you don't know what is the tipping point. And we are in very risky territory right now. Yeah, and and so it's the the Main Street Lending Program, right? That that has about 454 billion dollars that can be then leveraged to give out to state and local governments. Uh, can also be given out to corporate corporations. There's just a lot of funds that the uh, what Rachel said was unprecedented, right? And it, it really is. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that unwinds. I mean, if you look at what happened after uh, the Great Recession, and remember the interest rates, Fed brought the interest rates down to zero percent where they're at today. Um, I think that's one of the contributing factors to why we had such a low, slow growth, um, lack of job creation recovery was one thing because of the Fed's actions. And then, of course, what the Obama administration did as well with raising taxes and regulations, uh, basically just just killing and destroying economic growth over time, uh, which was nice when the Trump administration came in, start to roll back those regulations, lower taxes. We saw what the economic growth um, really, really could be. And so I am concerned about what the Federal Reserve is doing here um, and, and, and the amount that their balance sheet has increased. I know they tried to increase a lot of liquidity, uh, but, but one thing that they're going to do is leave interest rates really low for a long period of time. And when you do that, you misallocate resources throughout the overall economy, leading to malinvestments and, and things of that nature. Um, and so I, I think that's really troubling. And, and one other thing that I mentioned that I was going to say earlier about the states that we've really got to be a little bit worried about here is back in 2003, uh, sorry, in 2011, the state of Texas did what uh, they had a, we had a budget crunch. And so there were some, some cuts that were made, but we also received the R money, the American Recovery Reinvestment money at that time, uh, that pumped up money to Rachel's point about education. And then the next session, what happened was, is that uh, a lot of the, the progressives and others said that we cut our education spending. But if you look in real terms, we didn't. What happened was that we had this huge increase in federal money that was a one-time expenditure that went away. And so then they used that as a way to say, you know what, you cut spending. And so what I'm worried about here is that we're going to get this huge influx of cash, whether it's Kentucky, Texas, or elsewhere, and we're going to put that in the baseline of our overall budget. And we can't do that because it's going to go away. And you'll get those same arguments that says, we cut X, we cut spending, we cut, we cut education, we cut healthcare, and that is a really damaging thing that we are continuing to feel the brunt of here in Texas from years ago. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for that question. Thank you to everybody um, who, who sent in questions today. Um, our time is, is running short here. I wanted to have a catch-all uh, segment, um, you know, kind of an M&M one-shot, one opportunity to get it all in kind of a thing. But um, I think that we are running out of time here. So what I'll just do is I, I'm, I'm going to say keep, stay in touch with us. Um, you should have our contact information. Um, we are more than willing, yep, right there at the bottom there, we are more than willing to um, engage and talk and facilitate uh, more of a conversation. So please feel free just to reach out to us. Please feel free to continue to send questions, your thoughts. We love hearing from you as well. Um, and, and I just wanted to give a very special thank you. This is a very tough time to, um, to, to juggle being at home and kids running around and things like that. So Treasurer Ball, Rachel, uh, uh, Dr. Gan Vance, thank you so much for spending your time with us here and with uh, the Heritage family. So I'm going to throw it back to uh, Andy. As we go out, we're going to turn our cameras off and Andy can, can kind of wrap up the conversation. But thank you so much once again. I want to thank everybody for this wonderful conversation. 
Thank you, Treasurer Ball. We loved having you address Heritage and Resource Bank again. Thank you, Vance. First time speaker on Resource Bank Virtual, but as Tim said, a longtime friend and a partner at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And thank you to Rachel, who has been uh, on countless radio, TV, and uh, coalition calls and multiple webinar uh, engagements this week. And thank you, Tim, for leading this important conversation on behalf of Heritage. Uh, clearly, there are real impacts to state budgets, but those are real impacts on taxpayers and families. And so we thank everybody for joining us and for all the questions. It's hard to get to all of them. You can email me at andrew.alabastro at heritage.org if you'd like to follow up. We enjoy hearing from you. We appreciate the ongoing feedback that we receive, especially to the short surveys following these sessions. Watch for a pop-up uh, survey after the window closes. We welcome your feedback. Please visit resourcebank.org and heritage.org for these recordings and for upcoming programs. Thank you for joining us.